story of two kingdoms. And if you haven't been with us, it's the story of Israel and Judah. And a little background, they used to be one nation under God, indivisible, with life, liberty, but not with justice for all. And this was part of the problem. Injustice, idolatry too, loving the Lord with a divided heart, a closed mind, and frankly, no soul, throwing themselves at the feet of any would-be deity they could get their hands on. The people denied the sovereignty and singularity of their God, their God, Yahweh. And as a result, they treated each other badly, unjustly, especially the poor and the needy. And so a united nation became a divided one with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And I point you now to the yellow insert in your bulletin. We'll keep having this little cheat sheet, if you will. If you have, remember Cliff Notes, it's like the Cliff Notes of this part of the Bible as it can be confusing. And the office staff being cute said, no, they're Chris Notes. So this is a Chris Note for you. <laughs> I thought it was cute. Okay, so <laughs> this, this, this gives you again sort of a snapshot of what's taking place in terms of this part of the story. You've got, again, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, once united, now divided. And you would think this split, this divorce, this separation, this clear sign of God's judgment would have shaken up Israel and Judah. But no, the two nations only doubled their troubles, their abuses, their offenses against God and each other. With their separate capitals, different kings, and multiple holy sites, they just kept battling within and warring with each other back and forth. Added to this, Israel and Judah each faced the growing pressure and threat of the great powers of their day. Egypt to the west and the south, Assyria and Babylon to the north and the east. But through it all, as we discussed last Sunday, through it all, God did not give up on his people. The Lord didn't choose sides either. He wasn't having any favoritism. God just kept sending prophets, ordinary people like you and me, called and sent to speak on the behalf of the Lord to the people and their king. Each and every time, these prophets that we looked at last Sunday delivered a strong and repeated word about the past, the present, and the future. Each one told Israel to remember how God had been faithful in the past, to respond, to acknowledge the present obstacle and challenge before them was one of their own making and therefore to repent, to turn around. And finally, they challenged the two nations to believe, not to dismiss the inevitable outcome of their actions in the future, but also as they look to the future, no matter what, to hold on to the hope of a better world that God would bring about even despite them. Time and again, these prophets shouted out the word of the Lord to make sure everyone could hear. But more often than not, Israel and Judah missed their wake-up call, especially the northern kingdom of Judah, of Israel, excuse me. For 200 years, northern kingdom of Israel, for 200 years, through five different prophets, God kept repeating himself to the northern kingdom of Israel, but every single one of their king, kings, every single one, 18 in all, and every generation whom they reigned over refused to listen. They didn't get the message. And so the northern kingdom of Israel ended up collapsing before the might of the rising world superpower of Assyria. 
Assyria then, which is located in what is today Syria and Iraq. The Lord allows them to fall in defeat and for his people to be taken captive. And again, back to this moment in time, one of the things the Assyrians did to ensure that whomever they captured, they conquered, did not rise up against them, was to take the citizens of that nation they defeated and then scatter them throughout their empire. When then the Assyrians, what they'd also do is they'd take people from other places in their empire and move them into the newly conquered territory. Being spread out like this, there would not be enough Israelites in one area to maintain their ethnic identity. And so the northern kingdom, the people of the northern kingdom became exiles. Most of them would never return to their homeland again. Instead, they would intermarry and assimilate into the new culture surrounding them. And this is why you'll often hear the ten tribes that made up the north, northern kingdom of Israel. You'll hear the ten tribes referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. We hear this part of the story for the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's very easy for us, many of us maybe who are even more well-versed in the Bible, we hear and perceive this outcome as inevitable. You know, it was just a foregone conclusion. It was just, it was going to happen. But as we continue on in the story this morning, and I told you it's a story in two parts, as we continue on to the second part of this story, as the Assyrian Empire, emboldened by its conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel, now turns its sights to the southern kingdom of Judah, we see that defeat and exile did not have to be the final word in Israel's story. That it didn't have to end up this way. If you have your Bibles open, we've had the slide on the screen. I want you to look at 2 Chronicles 32. As you're getting to 2 Chronicles 32, which is going to deal with the Judah part of this story, southern kingdom of Judah, I want you to understand that what we're looking at in 2 Chronicles 32 is also paralleled, meaning it's told again in 2 Kings 18 and 19. But we're going to be reading it out of 2 Chronicles 32. But this is one of those places where if you wanted to get the fullness of the story, you could also look in 2 Kings 18 and 19 as well. If you've got 2 Kings 32, let's hear this part of the story as Assyria turns its sights on Judah. Starting in verse 9. Later when Sennacherim, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lashish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of other gods? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all these gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors how much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Sennacherim's officers spoke against the Lord God and his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him, just as the gods of the peoples of other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. 
Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world as the work of human hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we're dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah. And to give you some background to what we read, and I want to continue to remind you, everything I'm going to tell you is not necessarily just here in Second Chronicles, but I'm also pulling from Second Kings 18 and 19, which also tell this story. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, was 32 years old when the northern kingdom of Israel fell and their people were taken captive. And as you heard, now the Assyrians are coming for him and his people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And the king of Assyria has encamped his army on the border of Judah. They are sieging the city of Jerusalem. And he informs Hezekiah and his people they will all die unless they surrender. And he adds, it's pointless to resist. You heard as the propaganda machine of the Assyrian Empire goes into full force, trying to instill fear, not just in Hezekiah, but in all the people. Judah has no defense. You have no one to help you. There's no alliance you can make, Judah, with another nation that will spare you from being overrun by me, by my army. The Assyrian king further sends envoys to taunt the Judeans and their king. In 2 Kings, you didn't hear it here, but in 2 Kings, the king of Assyria will actually flaunt the promise of giving the Judeans 2,000 horses to come up against him in battle. I'll give you 2,000 horses to come up against me in battle. He's flaunting this promise because he knows that the Judeans don't have skilled men to use them. The Assyrian king mocks the God of Israel as being a false idol a creation of the Judeans' own hands. And again, as you're reading this story, as you consider what just happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, by all appearances, it looks like Judah is going to go the same way as Israel did, suffering the same defeat, the same surrender, the same exile. And yet, as you heard, despite the odds, even though they're looking down the barrel of the full force of the world's greatest empire at that time, Judah does not fall. As you heard, an angel of the Lord destroys a large portion of the Assyrian army by night. All of the fighting men, all the commanders, all the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. Again, in 2 Kings, we're told it's 185,000 in total. They're put down. The king of Assyria barely escapes back home, withdrawing in disgrace, never coming back to Judah. As you heard, shortly after this crushing defeat, as a footnote, we're told the Assyrian king's two sons assassinate him, his own flesh and blood, stabbing their father in the back with a sword. The southern kingdom of Judah was right on the edge of destruction. And yet, unlike the northern kingdom of Israel, they did not fall. Why? What was the difference? The obvious answer to this question is, of course, God took care of them. Yes, but why them and not Israel? Remember I told you the Lord didn't play favorites. 
to appreciate the difference maker here, we have to go back a couple of chapters. And whether you're in 2 Chronicles and you're going back to chapters 29 to 31, or you're in 2 Kings and you're going back to chapter 18, you see that the answer, the difference maker, started at the top, as it always does. You see, Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah began his reign differently than others before him. Rather than serving himself, long before Assyria showed up, Hezekiah sought to serve the Lord. What we learn about in terms of Hezekiah's reign is Hezekiah, when he started as king, he boldly cleaned house. He boldly cleaned house of any hint or inclination towards idolatry, false worship. All the pagan altars, all the idols, all the temples, including, and this is a little interesting footnote we're also given, this is really how bad things had gotten in terms of idolatry. We're told in the midst of everything that Hezekiah got rid of, there were people in Judah who were worshiping the bronze serpent. And if you're asking yourself the bronze serpent, do you remember way, way back in the wilderness with Moses when the, when the plague of snakes came and Moses made this bronze snake and told the people to look up and if they looked up, that if they got bit, they wouldn't die. Does everyone remember that story roughly? Okay, there are people who, this is generations later, who have created a cult and are worshiping the image of that bronze snake, which all that was about was pointing them to the Lord, not to the snake. And so Hezekiah destroys that too. He destroys all of the idols, the temples, the pagan altars. He removes them and he destroys them. He goes further than that. The temple in Jerusalem, its doors had been previously nailed shut, literally nailed shut. Hezekiah opens those doors. And the temple that had once been abandoned, he cleanses and reopens. He reestablishes the Levitical priesthood to guide the people once again in true and proper worship. He reinstitutes the observance of the Passover as a national holiday. And with all these reforms, we're told that Hezekiah was doing what was good, what was right and faithful before the Lord. And it's written, in fact, that Hezekiah, this was just scratching the surface, that Hezekiah's reign was marked by this. Hezekiah, as a king, the scriptures tell us, held fast to the Lord. He didn't stop following him. He sought God, it says, wholeheartedly. And surprise, surprise, the people followed his lead. That's what leadership does. The people followed his lead. Generosity and compassion flowed. Justice and mercy returned to the land. And because of all this, We're told explicitly the Lord was with Hezekiah and the people and they prospered in all they did. And therefore, when trouble came knocking at their their door in the guise of the Assyrian Empire, Judah did not crumble. When Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah prayed and cried out to the Lord, Judah was delivered from conquest. That's the why. That's the difference maker. What's left for us is the so what. Beloved, the moral of the story, if you will, the point is our choices matter. Our choices matter. You know, we live our lives and sometimes we get into these these places where we convince ourselves there's no way out. You know what I'm talking about? You all of a sudden find yourself in a circumstance or your life's going a certain way and you start to convince yourself there's no way out. You repeatedly find yourself in the same situation, right? Right? Everything seems, keeps going down the same way every time. It's like a broken record. What happens can become so predictable we just expect it rather than question what's happening or even asking anymore if things could be different. You know, maybe we just call it bad luck or perhaps we start to wonder if it's just fate. 
And we just keep telling ourselves, well, we're stuck in a moment we can't get out of. And as we tell ourselves that, we slowly surrender to the belief there's just no other way. But what we see today in these two stories, in the contrasting stories of Israel and Judah, is it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. These things that we've briefly considered didn't just happen to them. What happened to Israel and Judah was not an unexpected surprise, but rather was forewarned by the God who called them into existence both as a people and as a nation. What happened in the northern kingdom of Israel, her tragic fall and exile, it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to end that way. Israel could have gone the way of the southern kingdom of Judah. She could have endured and survived. What happened? Their collapse was the result of choices made not just by the kings, but all the people of Israel. And in a similar yet contrasting manner, the resilience of Judah to hold out and hold on was a result of different choices made by King Hezekiah and the people. My friends, life is full of choices. We know this. Life is full of choices. We make choices every day of our lives. You can make a bad choice or you can make a good choice, but our choices matter. They affect things. They affect us. They affect our situations. They affect those around us. And some choices have life-changing consequences. Just ask Israel or Judah. Now, I know what you're thinking in the midst of this reality that choices matter. You're saying to yourself, I say it to myself, but yeah, life happens. Yeah, life happens. It's true. Of course, we can't control everything that comes at us. We can't control everything that comes at us. But the truth is, most of the cycles we find ourselves in do not come upon us by chance. They are born. They are maintained by choices of our own making. They repeat because of decisions we make that eventually become habits and rhythms that are hard to break. Israel didn't just be bad, wasn't just bad, it chose to be bad. <laughs> Hezekiah wasn't just a good king, he chose to be a good king. The people chose to follow him. So what can we learn from the story of Israel and Judah? What kind of choices do we have as we listen to their stories? Well, the first and to me most obvious choice we have as we listen to both these stories is we have the choice to listen and to follow. We have the choice to listen and to follow. We have the choice to serve something, to serve someone greater than ourselves. We have the choice to recognize, to heed, and to follow the Lord. I think this is inarguable. The northern kingdom of Israel took her relationship with God for granted. Think about this. Let this sink in. Two centuries of kings, 200 years, two centuries of kings, and not one of them acknowledged the basis for their crown and the model for their exercise of power. Not one. Instead of looking to God, they looked to themselves. Instead, in choosing to be self-made men rather than gracious reflections of their creator, each king, all of them, brought not only themselves, but their people to ruin because the people followed their leadership, looking to themselves, to their own interests, rather than the interests of others. 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because their eyes remained closed to seeing the reality of God's provision and providence all around them. Beloved, we hear the story of Israel and we have to see for ourselves we've been saved by grace. That's why we're here. That's what brings us together. We believe, we testify, we've been saved by grace. We have been forgiven and redeemed by the cross of Christ. We have been given the courage and certainty of victory over death. We have been blessed with the spirit of God, the wisdom, discernment, and power and authority of Christ in us and with us. Are we choosing to exercise those gifts? Are we choosing to engage this relationship? Are we choosing to acknowledge God's provision and providence in our lives, looking to the Lord for our inspiration, our wisdom and guidance, or are we looking to ourselves, to what is right in our own eyes? Israel made this repeated choice even as the Lord continued to send messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet to them. And perhaps the most poignant example of this for the northern kingdom of Israel is witnessed in the experience and prophecy of a man named Hosea. Hosea was the last prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He was raised up right before everything fell apart. And Hosea has his own book keeping his prophetic word alive. And it's, if you've never read Hosea, I'm going to just give you a sample of it, but I'm encouraging you to read this book later because what you'll find when you read Hosea is God asked Hosea not only to give his words to the people, the Lord asked Hosea to give his own life as the message. You see, God came to Hosea and he made this very unusual and strange request. And the details of this are recorded in his book. God told Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. To marry a prostitute named Gomer. To marry a person who wasn't looking and wasn't likely to leave her line of work. And sure enough, after they got married, Gomer goes back to business. Leaving Hosea for periods of time, offering and selling herself to others And through it all, God tells Hosea to go to Gomer and show her his love. Show her your love. Show her your love, even though your heart is going to get stomped on and broken again and again. And when you read Hosea, the first part of this book is the narrative of this. And then what you start to see is, as I told you, that God's message is being revealed through Hosea's life. Hosea's marriage to Gomer becomes a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. Just as Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea, so the people of Israel are unfaithful to God. And just as Hosea continues to remain not only committed to his wife, but loving her, even in the midst of her unfaithfulness, so the Lord says he will remain committed to his people. It's a it really is a startling book if you've never read it before. It's, it's beautifully tragic in many ways because through Hosea's experiences and words in a very different way than some of the other prophetic books, God seeks to communicate in this intimate and heartbreaking way yet again to Israel. He seeks to convey, you're mine. You're mine. I love you. And I want you to come home. But you heard it already. You know 
how this story ends. To the bitter end, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel refused to love God. They refused to be loved by God. Israel didn't. She couldn't. She wouldn't recognize Yahweh as her lover, as her friend, as her Lord. And you see, the thing that we miss, you know, we always cut to the chase to the end of the story that, Assyria, that, that Israel falls to Assyria and the people are exiled away from their land. But understand this, get this. The physical exile of Israel, the end of the story, that, mo- that, that tragic event, that's just the final manifestation of how Israel was already living as a people. The physical exile of Israel, the northern kingdom, is just the final manifestation of choices they made spiritually and relationally towards God a long time ago. Because the northern kingdom had sold herself into bondage. Through her idolatry, she had chosen a life of slavery long before the Assyrian Empire carried her away from her home. Israel heard God's word but refused to act on it to follow the one who was speaking to her. Israel paid lip service to being in relationship with God, sure. But when push came to shove, when the prophet showed up and God started speaking, Israel wouldn't listen. My friends, we sit here today and we too have God's word. Man, we got God's word in more ways than one. We've got it in our hands. We've got it digitally. You can look it up on the internet. You can have multiple copies of it. We print it all over the place. We have God's word. And more than that, through that word, God's spirit continues to speak to us. But the question is, are we choosing to listen? We hear it, but are we choosing to listen? Are we hearing God's word and following it? Or are we hearing but not listening? Are we paying lip service to God's word on Sunday, but refusing to act on it, to live by it in our Monday through Saturday lives? Interesting thing. Did you know that of all the prophets sent during the time of the northern kingdom of Israel, did you know that only one was successful? Only one. Anybody know his name? Might surprise you. Jonah. Now, some of you who know your Bible are going to go, Jonah? Yep. Of all the prophets sent during the time of the northern kingdom of Israel, only one is successful, and that's Jonah. And if you know Jonah's story, Jonah went to Nineveh. Reluctantly, Jonah went to Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria. That's right. The capital of the people the enemies of Israel, the nation that we just talked about who ultimately conquers them. Jonah goes to Nineveh in Assyria, and if again, if you remember this story, much to his disgust, they repented and were saved. Think about that in light of everything we've just talked about. While Israel refused to listen, Assyria paid attention and responded. While the people who didn't know the Lord fell on their faces and turned their lives around, the people who supposedly knew God refused to listen and follow him. I find this both ironic and a caution for us. We are the ones who supposedly know the Lord. We are the ones who have no problem telling the rest of the world what the word of the Lord says. But as God continues to move and speak in this world, are we the ones who are actually following the word of God? Or will we find ourselves in that strange and awkward place 
and realize that we're not the ones who are listening. We're not the ones who are following. Because like Israel, we stand before a God. We, today, stand before a God who repeatedly professes his love for us. We stand before a God who offers us grace and calls us to live out of that love. And by that grace, we we stand before a God who beckons us to follow where that divine love and holy grace takes us in terms of how we conduct ourselves, whom we interact with, and how we treat each other. Israel refused to see that what or who you worship shapes how you think, how you live, and how you treat one another. Israel wouldn't face her idols and deal with them, and so those idols ended up overtaking and consuming her long before Assyria did. In these last two weeks, in this really third part of the story that's hard, it's a hard word, it's it's not the fun part of Scripture, it's the dark part of Scripture, we've talked a lot in these last few weeks about idolatry because it's just front and center. We've talked a lot about idolatry. Pastor John, myself last week, and here we are again, we've talked a lot about idolatry. But I'm asking you this morning, as this just continues to sit before us, while we've talked about idolatry, have we actually confronted what our idols specifically are? If you've been here the last three weeks, if you're here for the first time and you hear this, idolatry is this huge word. Have you stopped and reflected? Have you actually confronted what your specific idols are? Have you specifically named in your own life what gets in the way of your relationship with God? What predominates all your other thoughts and emotions? What monopolizes your time and energy? What are the attachments? What are the relationships? What are the prejudices that are consuming you? And again, that word idolatry is huge, right? It was so much easier back then maybe because the gods were named. In our day and age, we don't create them out of clay or stone or metal and put them someplace prominently and put a name on them. Our idolatry is harder to name because it's much more subtle. It's not out there. It's in here. And so when you ask yourself, if you're willing to ask this question, what are the idols in your own life, when you want to name them, a good place to start is always the big three. It's always the big three when you're looking for idols. Money, sex, and power. You'll always find idols in money, sex, and power. And if you're looking for a viable fourth politics, you can add to the list. You'll always find an idol somewhere in your politics. You gotta ask yourself. We've gotta ask ourselves and we've gotta confront the answer to the question, what in our life contradicts? What in our life rivals? and therefore obstructs our listening to and following the Lord. God's call to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly, as we talked about last week. And it's, again, I mentioned the Wednesday conversation. Man, the conversation this past Wednesday was rich. And it was tough. And, you know, I had a couple people afterwards, it was after the sermon and after Sunday, who came up to me and, you know, really appreciated my sermon last Sunday, but they wanted me to specifically name names, Right? When you say, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, where is that not happening? I want you to point it out. And every single time, I refused. I won't. And in the sermon, I was very intentional about laying out what God's word says, but leaving it as it should always be to you to wrestle with that. Why? Because if I tell you, if I start sharing my own take, my own perspective on this, which I can certainly do, but not here, if I start doing that, 
telling you what's not, what I think's not just, what I think's not loving mercy, what I think's not walking humbly, you can argue with me. You can disagree with me. You can write me off. But instead, if you get on your knees, if you open up God's word and you have that conversation with your creator, your living God, the God that you know in Jesus Christ, good luck disagreeing with him. Good luck with that. We, we have to name them. Because if you don't name them, if you don't call them out, they own you. You cannot be free of them. Israel, do you see this? I, do you see this in the story? Israel couldn't let go of her idols. And therefore, because she couldn't let go of those, she couldn't embrace the Lord. She was offered grace. You gotta see that. A grace again and again and again. She was offered grace, but she chose not to respond, not to follow. Israel couldn't let go of her idols and embrace the Lord, but Judah did. Judah did, and it made all the difference. Doing so changed their lives. Doing so transformed their nation. Through Hezekiah and Judah, we witness a healthy example of choosing to respond, to listen, and to follow God. And we see that that choice to respond means we have to clear away the things that get in the way. Or put them in their proper place. Some things maybe don't need to go away as much as need to be put in their proper place. And what's interesting, if we go further in the story of Hezekiah and Judah, out of that choice, that choice to listen and follow God, we also see a model for how to choose not to worry. And many of us, that predominates our life. Worry. Fear. Yet in the story of Hezekiah and Judah, we see a model for how to choose not to worry not to be afraid. Now, something I want to point out that you could easily miss, notice something in the contrast between Israel and Judah that there are also similarities. Notice that because they listened to and followed the Lord, this did not exclude Judah from persecution or attack. I don't want you to walk away and hear some kind of uh, cheap equation that I'm giving you, that if you listen to and follow the Lord, you're never going to have persecution, you're never going to have suffering, you're never going to be under attack in your life. I ain't preaching some prosperity gospel here. That's not scripture and that's a lie. Judah listened to and followed the Lord and like everybody else, they experienced persecution and attack. There's no escaping that. We will suffer. But what we notice is that even though the Assyrian Empire came knocking on her door too, too threatening and taunting her, they endured. Because faced with this, Hezekiah and Judah could have made a different choice. Hezekiah and Judah, seeing the northern kingdom of Israel which fell, recognizing their own exposure and weakness, they could have made the choice to worry. They could have made the choice perhaps even to resign, to call it quits, but they didn't. Even when the odds were stacked against them, even when all signs pointed to defeat, by prayer and in faith, they chose not to fear, but to trust in the Lord. My friends, are you making that same choice in your life right now? Are you cho choosing by prayer and in faith not to fear, not to worry, but to trust in the Lord? Are you choosing not to worry, not to give in to fear? Are you choosing to cast your burdens on the Lord, to wait for and trust God? And as you're forming the answer to that question in your own head, think about this. Recognize this, that the choice not to worry for Hezekiah and Judah, the choice not to fear for Hezekiah and Judah was not instantaneous. 
It was not some kind of knee-jerk reaction to their situation. Their choice not to fear but to trust in the Lord was a response they were prepared to give because of the previous choices they had made to listen and follow God. That's why I took you back in that story. In getting rid of their idols, in returning back to the heart of true worship, in living out of God's love and grace, in reviving justice and mercy in the land, the choice to pray, to rely upon and trust the Lord before the threat of the Assyrian Empire was second nature to them. Beloved, the choice to trust God, the choice not to worry, not to fear, but to wait upon the Lord is a choice that must be learned and experienced. Past choices lead to present decisions. Hear that this morning. Past choices lead to present decisions. The choices we make now affect the choices we can make later. If you don't listen and follow God when all is well, when everything is in its place, when you feel blessed, when you feel like you're prospering, when everything is great, if you don't listen and follow God when all is well, you're not going to listen. You're not going to wait. You're not going to trust God when things get dark and stormy. I know we all think it's different because the church gets full when tragedy happens. We all think we're going to wait and trust God when all of a sudden something smacks us in the face that makes us realize we're mortal. We're finite. We're not God. All of a sudden, everybody wants to pray. Everybody wants to start talking about a higher power. The northern kingdom of Israel, by the way, when the end came, they were at their peak. They were prospering. Everything was great. They didn't think they had, there was a chance that they were going to lose it all. Even as Hosea, their last prophet, through the parable of his own life, kept saying to them, God loves you. He doesn't want this for you. It's not going to end well for you. Please stop. Please come home. My friends, if you don't trust God, if you don't rely on God, if you don't listen and follow God when all is well, don't kid yourself. You're not going to listen. You're not even going to think to listen. You're not going to wait. You're not going to trust. You're going to panic. You're going to try to do it yourself when things get dark and stormy because it will not be a learned response for you. If you rely on yourself, if we rely on ourselves, when we reach the end of ourselves, and can we all agree, we reach an end to ourselves, when we reach the end of what is humanly possible, if you rely on yourself, when you reach the end of what is humanly possible, you can't do anything but worry, but be afraid. But when you rely on God, when you reside, live in his unconditional love and immeasurable grace, you learn there is nothing to fear. No matter what it happens, no matter what, you will endure. No matter how bad it gets, you will get through it. And thanks to the resurrection, even if it kills you, you will rise again, eternally. When we don't take the life we've been given by God, the blessings we've received from the Lord for granted, we make different choices. We make different choices. But make no mistake, as we sit here today, we must choose. You know, it disturbs me more and more. I see sort of the cultural conversation is this idea of just drifting through life. 
you can't just drift through life. You know, sort of this, c'est la vie, it is what it is, it'll be what it'll be. We don't reflect, we don't think, we don't commune with God, higher power. It's just where the day takes us. That, that may be comfortable. That may work in the moment. But you can't just drift through life. Don't kid yourself if that's tempting to you. Because hear it this morning, ignorance is a choice. Ignorance is a choice. Neglect is a choice. Denial is a choice. We have to choose. But the good news, thank God, the good news, the gospel, is in the midst of our choices. And we have them, and they're real. In the midst of our choices, God has made a choice. His choice for us, for you, for me, for this whole wide world. And our Father remains unwavering and relentless in that choice. He is wholeheartedly and steadfastly committed to that decision. And we need only look to the cross to know, to remember this is most certainly true. And if you look to the cross and you still have doubts that God is committed to us, committed to this world, then remember, think upon the incredible gift of Pentecost, which we're just a few weeks away from celebrating. The gift of Pentecost, that the very presence, influence, and leading of God's Spirit within and among us assures us that the Lord isn't going anywhere. The Lord is taking us somewhere, making us, making all things new. A brief look back to the prophet Hosea, if you haven't read the book, if you've just heard about him secondhand, kind of like I've given to you this morning, there's this tendency to see the prophet Hosea, his story, his message, as being one of gloom and doom. And that's why I encourage you to actually read the book. Because when you read the book, or if you have, what we forget is that in the end, Hosea gets the girl. Hosea gets the girl. Hosea and Gomer are reconciled. Their love is restored. And the message of Hosea is so it will be for the bridegroom and his bride. So it will be for God and his people. So it will be for Christ and his church. Beloved, we worship a God who keeps his promises even when we don't. But the assurance of his covenant, and we can be assured of his covenant, does not negate the consequences of our decisions. Our choices matter. They affect us. They impact others. So what choice will you make? What choice will you make this morning? This morning, what choice have you made already? What choices have you made already in your life? Are you facing and owning your choices this morning? I asked you to face your idols. Let me put it another way. Are you facing and owning your choices this morning? And if you're not willing to do it, let me remind you of the, the timeless definition of insanity. Repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. As you sit here this morning, as you hear the word of the Lord, what choices in your life need to change? What choices need to be different today? Because when we forget who we are, whose we are, when we forget what it means to be God's people, we will find ourselves lost. If you're lost today, this is why. You've forgotten whose you are. 
You've forgotten what it means to be a child of God. And when we forget whose we are and what it means to be God's people, we will get into trouble. If you're in trouble, if you're finding yourself in trouble, own the fact that more than likely it's trouble of your own making. And even if it isn't trouble of your own making, your response can make it worse. <laughs> and if we don't know who we are, whose we are, we forget and we are not don't, and we forget what it means to be God's people, eventually we will fall, and we will fall hard. And maybe you're here today, and you've fallen hard. You're bruised, you're battered, you're beat up. And I'm not saying it's all on you. I don't know enough about your own circumstance, but I can say this, you don't have to let it end this way. It doesn't have to be this way. If your whole life is a series of choices, and you go, you know what, I'm just gonna keep making the same choice, I can't choose differently, it's not true. The leverage for you to choose differently in your life comes from the, the knowledge, the assurance, the promise, the gospel that God has already choosen, chosen you. God's mercies are new every morning. That's scripture. You probably have heard it before. But that means that every day is another chance to choose the Lord Another scripture says, this is the day the Lord has made and then it invites us to choose to rejoice and be glad in it. Because when we remember our identity as God's beloved, when we choose to live our lives in faith, hope, and love for him and for others, we find salvation. We find that we need not fear even if trouble finds us. We find we can experience deliverance even when everything around us says we're doomed. So beloved, what decision will you make? What decision will you make this morning? Will you crumble before what you're telling yourself is inevitable? Or will you believe and endure by God's grace to experience what seems impossible but is promised as certain? The choice is ours. Amen.